Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the Greenbelt is top of mind this week at Roma. That's the Rural Ontario Municipalities Association. What solutions have been discussed? Well, we'll get into that for you. What happened in the day two of the Liberals' cabinet retreat in Hamilton, Ontario? And the latest rate hike from the Bank of Canada is uh, heeding a warning from an economist about major job losses. By the way, uh, another good note, too, for football fans. Uh, Ticats finally signing Bo Levi Mitchell. Josh Smith from uh, Three Down Nation is going to join us and talk about that. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. There's been a great deal of concern, of course, about some of the announcements and, frankly, some of the the legislation that's been passed recently by the Ford government and the impact it's going to have on municipalities, large and small, right across this province. And, uh, well, the uh, Prime Minister and his cabinet were in Hamilton for the last couple of days. Uh, there was a meeting going on in downtown Toronto with uh, Roma. Now, Roma is actually called the Rural Ontario Municipalities of Ontario. Uh, that's small town Ontario, that's rural Ontario. And uh, they, like many other people in this province, have got some concerns about some of the provincial policies and the impact it's going to have on their communities. Uh, and first and foremost, I would imagine among those is, is the Greenbelt legislation. Uh, and, of course, we've gone over that, but I mean, it bears repeating because there's now possibly some investigative work going on in there. Uh, but we haven't spent a whole lot of time talking about how some of this legislation is going to impact uh, those communities. Uh, you may recall, of course, that uh, Doug Ford, the premier, uh, has insisted that no developers were t- tipped off to the government Greenbelt land swap plan. Uh, but others argued that something going on here because a lot of these people bought properties in there after the Ford government got elected, and even after uh, the Premier himself said, well, I'm not going to do that. There will be no incursions. Uh, Just to remind you once again, here's what the Premier had to say. The Premier is saying today that he is confident that no one gave anyone a heads up. At the end of the day, we're going to have 300,000 people Landing here in Ontario, over a 10-year period, we're going to have 3 million people. Ford also pointed out that the Greenbelt lands recently sold off and purchased were not government land. Private individuals' land that have the right to sell it to anyone they want. Ford's plan would see 7,400 acres opened up in exchange for 9,400 acres of protected land somewhere else. It's all in an effort to build 1.5 million homes over the next decade. We have a housing crisis. We have rental crisis. We want to make sure that we give incentives to people to build rentals. We want to make sure that they're building nonprofits and and uh, I always say attainable and affordable homes and regular homes. Matt Carty, Global News. So that's that's the, the foundation for this. But what about the impact this is going to have on, on different communities? Well, I'm sure that was uh, a lot of the uh, conversation that was going on at the, the Roma meeting in downtown Toronto over the last couple of days, just wrapped up yesterday, I understand. Uh, one of the attendees was Colin Best. Colin is uh, a regional counsel for Ward 1 in Milton, but he's also the president of the Association of Municipalities of Ontario. And uh, he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Colin, thanks for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill. Thank you. Uh, very important to get together and, and, and kind of, you know, exchange ideas and find out how your fellow councillors around the province are meeting. What, what was the buzz around uh, your meeting over the last couple of days? Well, it's just, uh, as you mentioned in your intro, that uh, there's a lot of concern from the, about the province in terms of what the details are. What we're looking for is the specifics and what some certainty so we can plan ahead and also finance because uh, we're very concerned about the uh, changes to development charges and also uh, changes to regional governments as well as uh, the official plans. We're basically being told to grow into areas that we have absolutely no plans to service. 
I want let's parse those and we'll talk a little bit about each one of these because they're all very very important issues. Uh, first of all, is let's talk about planning and and whether we're talking about Milton or or you know Halton region. I mean they're all the same animal uh, and all the way up into northern Ontario as well. Uh, we all understand. I think that you know every community here exists at the pleasure of the province. They they're the ones that grant the charter to to cities and towns, of course, to even exist. But there was a relationship between the provinces and, the, and those communities for the longest time that said look at we'll set the ground rules here and the, and the wide parameters but you decide how your community is going to grow and where it's going to grow because that's where you are that's where people live and, and that seemed to be an understanding for the longest time and, and and i think that's being questioned right now isn't it yes it is because uh, we had to not only halton's official plan but also hamilton's you know, mm-hmm. what the councils approved and what the province approved are totally different. And uh, it is a real concern, not only for our region, but other regions, is, you know, where are we going from here? It's a, it's a laudable goal of what the province is trying to do in terms of 1.5 million homes, but we need the specifics and we need help, specifically in terms of infrastructure, not only municipal, but provincial. We don't have enough schools right now to, to host our, our current population, let alone uh, 3 million more people in the next 10 years. And builders are telling me they can't build that much. We're asking to double the amount of growth that we've had even in the peak years. Well, from your time on council, I mean, you understand the process, certainly of planning and, and development for that matter. Uh, there's usually public consultation. Uh, it can be a lot of rather raucous sometimes, but I mean, you go through that process because you want to hear what people have to say to whatever plan it is that you're proposing. Uh, but when you go through all that and and you suffer the slings and arrows of people who may oppose it, uh, it's got to be rather disconcerting, Colin, when the, the province turns around and says, yeah, well, you're not doing that. We're going to tell you to do this instead. Yeah, and that's our concern. That's what we've been asking the ministers and the, and the premier is if you want us to do this, we need help in terms of infrastructure, in terms of servicing, and also a clear path of how we're going to finance this. The development charges is a controversial issue. I understand your argument totally. In fact, I agree with it, and I think a lot of people do, but the province still maintains it. No, 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 this is not going to have a negative impact. Maybe just very briefly give us the uh, the thumbnail version of why development charges are so important to communities. Well, without development charges, you don't have waters, you don't have uh, sewers, you don't have roads, you don't have schools. And without those uh, four factors, you're not going to have a community. And that's a concern we have. That We basically, the the whole philosophy we have in Ontario is growth pays for growth. If growth's not paid for growth, your existing taxpayers are subsidizing it, and they're already questioning. We already have a 15% deduction. Now this is even including more, and we do not have the specifics of what, you know, the affordable housing is. I understand, you know, the province wanting to cut costs, but right now our infrastructure costs are two and a half times what they were two years ago. And we have a hard job trying to finance what we've got now, let alone uh, future growth without with reduced uh, income. And, and that's the, the the crux of it. And and I know the province's defense, as you mentioned, is, well, that's only going to apply to affordable housing. Well, where's that going to go? How much of it's going to go? And where's the burden of that cost going to fall? And, and you and I both know where that is. Uh, it's going to be your local taxpayers. They're going to have to pay for the installation of roads, sewers, sidewalks, uh, maintenance of such as well, even though that may not be the area in town in which they live, but it's going to fall to the municipal tax base. Yeah, exactly. It, whether it's in, in greenfields or in brownfields, a lot of existing systems, not only in Hamilton, but you know, throughout the province, are built to have a certain density. Once you increase that density, you have to increase the services, which means you know, going in and you know, basically tearing up roads to put in these new services to enlarge it, to you know, also increase the water and, and wastewater treatment plants. 
and then these are very sticky issues, and I know that a lot of folks may not have a full grasp of it or paying attention to it, but uh, it's going to have an impact on everybody in your community and in, in every community because, I mean, it's it's all about property taxes uh, and, you know, eventually who pays. And it's a trickle-down situation here, which I can understand fully. Let me ask you about the Greenbelt situation, too. I mean, you know, the, the area to which you represent, uh, lush, beautiful areas, of course, and, and so many natural features there. It's, it's such a wonderful place to live here in Southern Ontario. Uh, and and I know there was some skepticism about the Green Belt when it was first initiated uh, by the McGuinty government a number of years ago, but I think people have come to understand how important it is and, and how valued it is, too. Uh, what's what's the word in your community about, about the impact this is going to have about basically uh, incursions into the Green Belt to build houses? Well, the first thing, it doesn't make any sense, as both Hamilton and Halton proved and other municipalities, you can do far better, and actually builders have been doing it for 10 years in my community, of building at least double what the province is saying. The province is saying like 60 people or jobs per hectare. They're coming in over at 100. And actually, we've got some, especially in the uh, urban growth centers, you know, they're looking at to double what the province, and this is, you know, something that makes it more efficient. And that's why I thought the provincial government wants to reduce costs. Well, the best way to reduce costs is to build on existing infrastructure. We have a lot of areas, uh, as you know, in Hamilton, where we've had to close high schools. Well, that's the perfect areas where you put the build the density so you could actually have these schools stay in place, same in Burlington. Uh, and there are solutions, and and even as as we've talked about on the program, uh, even the the province's own affordable housing task force uh, that Tim Hudak and others uh, sat on for the number of months uh, came up with some uh, some interesting innovations and ideas here. Uh, but they were pretty adamant in their report, as you know, Colin, that uh, they did they did not agree with incursions into the greenbelt. They said there was more than enough available land to build all the houses that the province wants to build, and we can do that without that. Which, you know, begs the question, like, where's the rationale for what they did then? Yeah, exactly. And then Robin Jones, the uh, president of the Roma uh, Association, you know, said the same thing. They have a whole task force that came up with similar ones. And David Crombie also mentioned it in his presentations. There's already 88,000 acres in the GTA that are already designated for urban lands that haven't been built on. So there are answers to this. Uh, I, I During my municipal politics days, uh, I, I sp- every year went to AMO. I always thought it to be a very worthwhile conference. Uh, but it's 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 good to have that that one voice. I mean, uh, you know, there are some commonalities. I mean, you know, you could talk about you know Blind River, Ontario, and 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 you know Milton. But at the same time, there are some common concerns and problems when it comes to growth and to future growth in situations like that. Uh, talk to us about how important it is to to have these conferences so people can get together. And exchange ideas and opinions. Well, not only the conferences we do that. We have them at board meetings. We have forty-three members on our board. You know, throughout the province. You know, no matter what. You know, very large communities are very small, and we all have common interests. And what we need is the details and the specifics in the province. We advocate to them. And one of the big issues right now that was at the conference was uh, housing and homelessness. It's not only the providing a house, but also the the services. And this is one of the discussions we had uh, yesterday was that we need the health care, we need the mental health, we also need the support services because there's a lot of people hurting these days and we need to build, you know, not only for families but also for individuals of all ages. One of the points that I've heard, and we've had David Crombie on the show a few times talking about this, and I was glad he was able to uh, attend the, this gathering and, and, and talk to some of the folks there. Uh, he's a strong voice uh, and, and you know, a conservative, a fiscal conservative. He was in the Mulroney government, of course, the mayor of Toronto, former mayor of Toronto. 
uh, but he has an environmental bend toward it because he understands that, you know, this is our planet. We have to be careful of that. And, and we applaud him for that. But when we start talking about that, it's, it's, as you say, it's not just the autonomy of municipalities to be able to plan, but it's where to plan and, and, and who's going to pay for it in situations like that. How does an organization like AMO or Roma, for that matter, Colin, uh, address something like this. I mean, you don't want to be confrontational with the government. And I, I, I don't think of, through all some of the controversial times, whether it's Mike Harris's downloading or some of the McGinty uh, energy programs that were in there, there could be disagreement. But at the same time, you, you don't want to, you know, get militant about it. Uh, but at the, at the other end of that spectrum, though, is uh, we can't just sit by and just say, well, it's going to hurt us, but just let's let it happen because they've made that decision. Where do you find that balance? Yeah, well, that's what we try to do, and we got some uh, great staff at AVO and also the and municipalities are advising us and just basically saying that, okay, let's be proactive. We've got some mutual goals here. We can work together, and we also need everybody because we're willing to step up and do the activities, and we certainly do that through our community housing programs, and I'm, I'm part of it at Halton today. We have a regional council meeting. We're dealing, dealing with their budget. But uh, we need the investment not only at the provincial level, but also the federal level. The federal government wants us to increase population. We need their help as well as provincial help, not only in their own infrastructure, such as hospitals, schools, and transportation, but in also giving the guidelines and the support, because if we don't have the infrastructure, we cannot build the housing. And and that's the, one of the key elements. Uh, it, it, you know, the Green Belt does not say uh, no growth, and the province has never said no growth. We want growth. We want to have uh, places for people to live, especially with the the influx of, of immigrants and the, and the population growth. We want to have roads. I know we want to access public transit, but we're still going to have to have roads. But it's not it's, – it's where they want to build them and where they plan to build them that I think is the sticking point here, isn't it? Yeah, that's part of it. And also looking at areas where we have uh, population decline. We have a lot of mature neighborhoods. If you look at, at the census tracts in Toronto, they just had a graph a few uh, days ago. They're showing there's a lot of population decline where you have one person living in a house that, that's suitable for four. We have to look at, at inadequate ways, you know, not only protecting the neighborhood, but also you know, being what's called the gentle uh, density, which both environmentalists and builders agree on. You can build in these areas and make sure you have a you know a very resourceful area that people can live, work, and retire in. It's a challenging time, and uh, I'm, I'm glad that uh, the municipalities are talking about this and developing strategies, and, and, and hopefully the government is going to be able to listen to, to some of these ideas and some of the concerns that you've raised. Uh, Colin, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. You're welcome, Bill. Good luck. Colin Best, uh, Councillor for uh, Milton, Ward 1 in Milton, but also the President of the Association of Municipalities of Ontario. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As we've talked about, uh, the uh, Liberal Cabinet is meeting uh, for a, a retreat in uh, Hamilton the last uh, two or three days. Uh, yesterday, Christia Freeland, the Deputy Prime Minister and, of course, Finance Minister, uh, addressed the gathering and had some comments to make. And uh, she says that, look, at you know, the economy is going to be one of the main focus uh, of discussion, and I'm sure it has been for most of the time together. Uh, but she says the government has been focusing, among many other things, on keeping unemployment low. We knew that job loss was devastating for Canadians, and we have been working hard with Canadian people, with unions, with Canadian businesses to recover those lost jobs. We're now at more than 120% of the jobs lost to COVID, and that is really important for Canadians, for the people of Hamilton. 
I want to focus on that in just a second and some of the other elements of, uh, of the discussions over the last couple of days uh, with our next guest. Uh, he is uh, Wayne Petrosi, the professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Toronto Metropolitan University. Uh, professor, pleasure to have you back in the program. Thanks for the time today. No problem. Good morning to you. Good morning to you, too. I, I just want to touch on uh, the, the quote there from uh, the, the Deputy Prime Minister uh, t- talking about, you know, trying to keep those employment numbers high and the unemployment low as part of the recovery. Yet when you read some of the comments from uh, Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklin, he's basically saying the employment numbers are a little too high. He wants to see those lowered to try to battle inflation. Uh, are, are we working across purposes here, Wayne? Well, I think what what uh, the finance minister is doing is she's kind of pro- providing an alternative view to what's been the traditional view in the business community and among many academic economists. That is that the best way to fight inflation is to squeeze labor. And, you know, and traditionally that's been, you know, a, a pretty significant core belief of many economists. And But there are those who, who really doubt that, that that has to be the case. That it, you don't need to kill the patient by giving them so, too much medicine. And, and we were warned about that when the, the bank started this whole process, weren't we, that, that they had to find a balance here. Because if they push too hard, too fast, and, and as you say, too deliberately, uh, they could fast track us right into a recession, which is a whole different set of circumstances. Yeah, no question. And, and you know, we have to keep these comments in, in the context of we're ramping up pretty dramatically our immigration intake. And, and so the last thing we can be doing is, is pouring more new new workers into the market at the same time as we're squeezing the market for labor. So, again, to, to try to find that balance. I mean, we're going to talk about the interest rate hike, which is expected later on this morning. Uh, but the, I guess the, the, the black cloud all hauling this whole thing, I mean, usually in gatherings like this, the government, especially uh, in this situation, uh, we'll try to spin this to a positive things like, yes, this is rough, but you know, we're, we're doing the right things and we're starting to see some positive growth. Uh, but the, the, the message yesterday basically is, look, 2023 is going to be a challenging year. Uh, they, they call it, I think the phrase they used was a very turbulent year for the economy. Uh, we thought 2022 was a turbulent year. Uh, uh, this, is, this is kind of a downer to think, you know what, we're not out of the woods yet. As a matter of fact, we may be going deeper into the woods before we find the other side. I, I think they are deliberately sounding cautious on this and, and warning us of what may occur. Frankly, I'm not so sure that that, that amount of pessimism is, is really warranted. Uh, I suspect we will balance out mid-year fall. And, and I don't, you know, I, there aren't many economists who any longer see some kind of deep recession. But I think they want to be careful not to uh, overpromise. And frankly, you know, I, I think they've got more concerns on the political side of things rather than ter- the performance of the economy. Well, and that's, again, where there may be a, a potential conflict, isn't there? I mean, it, it, as you say, you know, Economics 101 suggests that, okay, when you're in a situation like this, uh, governments especially have to cut spending. Yet, at the same time, uh, the Liberals want to maintain this relationship they have with the NDP, uh, which is going to entail, of course, uh, some form of national pharmacare program. Uh, which is going to be rather costly, and a couple of the other things that are on the uh, the NDP uh, wish list, I guess. Uh, so th- this is going to be a pretty tough order for, for the government to try to deliver on that, at the same time express some form of fiscal responsibility. Yeah, I, I think their the, their 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 sensibilities about the NDP are partly reflected in the finance minister's comments yesterday about not wanting to 
offer up labor on, on, on the altar of sacrifice in, in, in the name of avoiding a deep recession. And, and you're right. They have promises that they've made that are expensive. I think even greater significance, the pending uh, health care deal with the provinces, which is, is going to be a very expensive proposition, a necessary one, but, but a very expensive one. And, you know, they're pretty committed to trying to tie that deal down early in this year rather than late this year or next year. So, so that's going to be a challenge, uh, and we'll watch how that proceeds. If I just want to shift gears, because we got some news, of course, yesterday uh, about the, U- the Ukraine situation, and, and we know already, of course, that uh, President Zelensky has, has asked for, he needs more tanks. Uh, you know, the, the, the aid for the, the people is wonderful, but he needs, he needs weaponry. Uh, there was some hesitation. I think we all know the background. Uh, the number of the tanks he's asking for, the Leopard 2, uh, were made in Germany, and you had to get German government approval. So the latest on that, as you know, Professor, is uh, Germany said, yeah, go ahead. Matter of fact, they're going to supply some of those tanks. The United States is now going to supply tanks, not the Leopard tanks, but the the, the kind that they make. How much pressure is there on the, the, the government right now to follow suit? Well, I, I think their inclination is to follow suit. I, I think, though, for them, part of the issue is, is, a, is an issue of timing, and, and by that I mean just how long it would take to ship leopards from Canada, where I assume they're mostly located, uh, and into, into Ukraine. I wouldn't be surprised if we see some sort of arrangement where uh, another European partner uh, sends tanks right away and Canada promises to replace those by sending it to that third country. Uh, we, we've seen that happen with some other weapons uh, uh, purchases where in a sense uh, either the Americans or the Canadians are, are backfilling when a, a, a third country advances weaponry to the Ukrainians. That would certainly, you know, it would solve the problem in terms of, yes, we're doing it, we're committed, and it would then provide an incentive for the third country to move the tanks quickly to Ukraine, knowing Canada was going to supply resupply them with their tanks in, in a somewhat longer time frame. And that actually sounds much more practical, especially in light of the fact that the update we got from the Canadian military last week was, yeah, we have 22 of those tanks, but they're in the shop. Uh, they, they need some work done on them. So that you're right. They, they can't ship those over there right away. So there, there's going to be a time lag here, isn't there? Yes, there is. And, and But I, I don't think there's any hesitancy politically. I think the government's pretty committed to Ukraine, and they and 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 for good reason. It's going to be fascinating to watch, and we're expecting. Uh, we're told some uh, major government announcements today, maybe about the tanks, but also about some of the fiscal policy uh, as they wrap up in Hamilton. Always a pleasure to get your perspective on this, uh, Professor. Thank you so much for the time today. Oh, you're welcome. You have a good day. You betcha, Professor Wayne Petrosi from uh, Toronto's Metropolitan University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, the Bank of Canada has uh, done their thing, and uh, we're going to have to live with the consequences, I guess. Uh, Just a little while ago, they announced uh, another quarter-point interest uh, hike. Uh, They say, though, maybe this will be the last one. Maybe. There are a number of people that are watching this, uh, this whole process unfold over the last couple of months and suggesting that this one shouldn't have happened. Uh, that we have to stop every now and then and, and look around and see what's happening because of these policies. And uh, I don't know that the, the folks at the Bank of Canada have done that. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm kind of concerned about some of the comments from the 
the Bank of Canada about these policies. Uh, I want to bring our next guest in to talk about this. And, and the, there's a piece that uh, appeared uh, in the Toronto Star the other day that, in which our guest was quoted extensively uh, about the impact this is going to have, the interest rate hikes, and even this one too. It's a kind of like piling on to uh, Canadian consumers. And the prediction is that hundreds of thousands of jobs are at risk now that the Bank of Canada has raised the key rate for the eighth time. Our guest is Jim Stanford. Jim is an economist and director of the Centre for Future Work. Uh, Jim, always a pleasure to have you on the program and to get your perspective. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Bill. I, I use that characterization that they're piling on to consumers here. Yeah. Uh, is there any indication at all that the, the bank who, you know, let's say so, are following, you know, the basic formula of, of uh, economics, you know, on page one, it says if there's a, uh, you know, if there's inflation, you got to raise interest rates. That's going to stop spending and, and it's going to make things better. But do they understand the implications and they understand the, the damage that that can cause? I, I like your analogy of piling on, Bill. It's kind of like a late hit in a football game, you know, it's yeah. NFL playoff season. The guy's already on the ground, and then somebody comes and jumps on him. That's kind of what it feels like uh, today. Uh, this was the eighth increase in interest rates uh, since last March. Uh, it takes the policy rate uh, up to 4.5%. Of course, you know, you and I and everyone else pays a lot more than that on our mortgage and our credit cards and our car loans. Uh, so, um, and it is a situation where, frankly, the, the, the player was already on the ground. Uh, we're seeing really negative signs in terms of uh, what consumers are doing. Consumer spending has been falling in Canada since last fall and is, uh, is getting worse for the obvious reason. If you have a mortgage, you're paying hundreds of dollars extra per month in interest charges now. And that means you've got less to spend on food and clothing and, sh- and shelter and the other necessities of life. Uh, you've got business investment uh, slowing down. Uh, perhaps most worrisome, you've just got a very widespread expectation that we are going to have a recession uh, this year. And that expectation can become self-fulfilling. You know, if enough consumers and businesses uh, fear a recession, they all stop spending, they all batten down the hatches, and lo and behold, that creates the recession they were afraid of. Uh, and we're definitely into that sort of dynamic uh, right now. So I, I do think this was uh, was not needed. Now, the bank has said they, they're now going to pause. They're going to pause and watch what happens. They think the recession will bring inflation down. Uh, it's not entirely clear that's, that's going to happen. And if it doesn't, we may end up with even more rate hikes, believe it or not, Bill, even as the economy uh, goes into a downturn. Well, because we're supposed to acknowledge past comments too, Jim, and you and I have talked about this in the past. What the Bank of Canada is doing now, what they started doing a couple of months ago by jacking these rates up, uh, we've been told by economists all over the place that actually we're not even going to really feel the impact of that for another 12 to 15 months. That's right. <laughs> Which tells me that there's no way that inflation is going to fall. I mean, I'm glad that it's gone down the way it has. Uh, but uh, there, there are probably, in my mind, any other market factors which are causing that uh, that decrease. Not what the Bank of Canada is doing. The Bank of Canada is causing a, a real problem here with the implications it's having on the economy. And some are suggesting right now that this, that policy is what's driving us toward a recession. Uh, we have seen that moderation in inflation. It went from eight point one percent at peak in June uh, down to six point three percent by December. So that's helpful. Now, that had nothing to do with interest rates. This is the amazing thing, Bill, because the spurs to that inflation in the first place really didn't have much to do with our domestic economy anyway. It was all about Mm. supply chain uh, shocks, uh, the COVID disruptions, uh, the war in Ukraine, energy prices, etc. Now, energy prices have come back down, as you know, in recent months. 
and 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 a few of those other international factors have abated, and that's that's been the reason why headline inflation has fallen. Now, 6.3% is better than 8%, but it's nowhere near 2%. And the Bank of Canada says we are resolute. It's in the in their press release today. We're resolute to get it to 2%. So unless uh, overall inflation really slows down significantly in the in the event of an uh, economic uh, recession, uh, we could very well see the bank decide to increase interest rates again in the future. And that's exactly what they said they'll do today. But here's the concern I got. As I say, page one of Economics 101, it says, you know, if you're in inflationary times, you raise interest rates. Page two says if you're in a recession, you have to lower interest rates to to encourage consumer spending. Uh, it sounds like we're, we're at cross purposes here. Well, we could be looking at a situation like we had in the 70s. It's called stagflation. You know, that page one and page two discussion that you just said, page one is inflation, page two is recession. What if you got both? And we could very well have both. That was where this term stagflation came from. The reason is, uh, Bill, because that initial inflation was not the sort of classic story of an overheated economy and workers getting high wages and and customers or companies passing on their costs to consumers. That was not the the classic story. This inflation that we experienced last year was all about the pandemic, where you shut a whole chunk of the economy down overnight, and then you reopened it very quickly. And you had all of these growing pains and all of these readjustments uh, throw in the war in Ukraine, and, you know, you've just got a a very chaotic economy, and, you know, you're going to have some impacts from that, and inflation was one of them. It was not the result of the economy being too strong. We still hadn't even fully recovered from the pandemic. So that classic recipe, if inflation is too high, it must mean, you know, uh, the economy is too hot, workers are getting too high wages. That classic recipe did not apply here. But the Bank of Canada has been determined to do it anyway. And this is where I, I think we could very well end up with both recession and inflation that's above their goal, which means we could even see more rate hikes down the road this year. I want to talk about a key thing that you that you've written about extensively too, and that's employment numbers. And and as you know, the the federal government's doing their retreat in Hamilton these last couple of days. And Christy Freeland, the finance minister, uh, was was basically saying one of the priorities for this government is to maintain those high employment numbers uh, to get us through this. Uh, and then Tiff Macklin, the, the from the Bank of Canada, the governor from the Bank of Canada, is basically saying, you know what, you're still spending too much money. There's going to have to be job loss here to help drive inflation down. Uh, I, I don't know who's suggesting, and you know, okay, you and you and you, you're going to have to lose your jobs so that we can all live more comfortably. It, it just seems contradictory. They are at cross purposes, absolutely. I mean, it's it, it's always been kind of implicit in how the central bank does its business that they they've got a view that you have to have a certain amount of unemployment in society to keep everyone in line and keep prices uh, from going up and keep wages from going up. And, you know, that is, I think, uh, in a way, a kind of a cynical view of the economy. I think we could do better than just saying we have to have a certain number of uh, unemployed, what, 1 million, 1.5 million? How many is required to keep the rest of us in line? We should be able to figure out a way to uh, set wages uh, and manage labor markets that we can do better than that. Now we had uh, Tiff Macklin come out and actually say the quiet bits out loud (laughs) just before uh, the Christmas break. He came out and said, unemployment's too low and I'm going to raise it. It isn't often you, you hear an economic policy maker be that blunt, uh, but he said it. Um, and that does create problems for the government. That's why Krista Freeland is, you know, trying to make a different message, um, you know, and, and she wants to maintain employment with good reason. People's lives depend on having a decent job and, and income uh, to meet the necessities of life. 
but uh, she is, uh, in a way, going one direction while the central bank is going the other. And this can create, again, um, a bit of paralysis in the overall uh, economy. Well, I'm concerned about the implications, and I know you've written about it a number of times, too. Uh, we'll see what happens. They, they've, as you mentioned, said this is probably going to be the last one for a while, but uh, we'll, we'll see. I'm not going to hold them to their word because I don't think they can keep that, but I'm watching government policy to see what they're going to do, too, because there seem to be some contradictory things. Uh, Jim, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for this, and we'll stay in touch. Thank you, sir. I'll talk to you again. You betcha. Jim Stanford, economist. He's also the director of the Center for Future Work. Uh, spends most of his time, well, halfway in Australia and, of course, uh, in uh, the west coast of Canada, too, out in Vancouver. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Great news for Hamilton Tiger Cat fans, and I think for the CFL in general. Uh, yesterday, uh, the Tiger Cats announced that they have uh, re-signed uh, Bo Levi Mitchell as uh, their quarterback for the next few years. Of course, he was Hamilton property after that trade with Calgary. The speculation was, as a matter of fact, Bo Levi himself said that he was going to wait until free agency and test the market and see who was out there. But uh, he uh, signed yesterday, long before the free agency deadline came. And, of course, uh, they had a big uh, press conference down at Tim Hortons Field about it yesterday. And uh, they asked him, why Hamilton or why now? And this is what he had to say. I, I like how hard-nosed it is. You know, steel workers just kind of make things happen. And um, they love this sport. They love this team. They love this organization. Um, you know, for me, it's it's being being a part of something. It's, you know, I... I I'm from Texas. You know, you guys know that. I like, I like playing in front of fans. I like playing in front of fans that when you're playing well, it's going great. When you're not, they're mad at you, and they should be. They pay a lot of money, and they work hard for their money. Uh, and uh, almost, uh, as I was told, almost a euphoric uh, feeling in the room there that uh, that they finally got this thing done. Josh Smith joins us. Uh, he's been covering this story for months now. Josh is a reporter for Three Down Nation uh, covering uh, football in Hamilton. Uh, Josh, were you surprised by the move yesterday? Not really. The, when these things happen, so obviously the trade went down last November. They got his rights from Calgary in, in a deal. When these things happen, it tends to mean the quarterback or the player, whoever it is, is going to sign here. I think in the last decade or so, this is the fourth or fifth such move. I know Michael Riley got traded from BC to Edmonton. There was Nick Arbuckle got traded from Calgary to Ottawa. And there's another one who, off the top of my head. I, oh, James Franklin got traded from Edmonton to Toronto ahead of free agency when they were about to hit free agency. They all signed. So Bo signing didn't shock me. Uh, I know he did say that he was going to try to test free agency and that he wanted to see what was out there. But at the end of the day, as he said in the press conference yesterday, Hamilton was at or near the top of his list of places he wanted to go. And when teams make these sorts of deals, it, it's with almost the tacit implication, the tacit uh, consent of he's going to sign with the team that trades for him. They wouldn't have traded for his rights had they not had conversations with him and all that sort of thing. So while it was the, the lead up to it might make you think that it was a bit surprising. I, I wasn't all that shocked that a deal got done ahead of the uh, start of free agency next month. Well, especially because, and you and I talked when the, the trade was made to get his rights, uh, Hamilton seemed like a good fit for him. I mean, we, uh, we were trying to be as objective as we can. I'm a Tiger Cat fan, true and true. Uh, but given where he was and what he has already accomplished and, and what the Tiger Cats need, and I think that that visit that he and his wife made to Hamilton in December uh, was a major factor in this. I mean, they spent a couple of days just basically touring the area. I mean, I'm sure, yeah, Bo Levi's been in the league a long time, but I think all he knew about Hamilton was, uh, you know, Tim Horton Field and, and the hotel that they were staying at when they were in town. Uh, but they, they toured Burlington, Ancaster, Hamilton, uh, the golf courses. Uh, but he, both he and his wife were avid golfers. And, and that's a factor in situations like that. When you're at a point in his career like Bo Levi is, quality of life and, and the, the impact on families is a big part of it, isn't it? 
absolutely. There was all this talk that he would go to the highest bidder. And he said himself, it was, it's never been about money for him. Like as the star quarterback in a, in a, in a league like the CFL, he's going to get paid no matter where he plays. The money is a few dollars here or there. It's about living somewhere that you want to be. And when they brought him in, in December, toured the facilities, toured around the, like you mentioned, Ancaster, Burlington, not just Hamilton itself, but what the entire region has to offer. I think that there ended up being uh, a comfortability there with him coming in. Cause like you said, he'd, he'd probably never seen anything outside of like the, the hotel and the stadium that he played in. So getting, getting to know the city, he's got a young family, he's got kids, I believe they're five and three years old. So there, there needs to be sort of a, this is, this is not just an, an individual decision. This was a, a true family decision. And I think when you think of some of the places around the CFL, like where would be the best to have a family, Hamilton ranks pretty high up there. It's, it's a great city. It's, it's blossomed in ways 25 years ago we never could have imagined. It, it's a much different city than I think people sort of when you say the name Hamilton, they kind of think in their mind. So getting him here. Allowing him to get familiar with the coaching staff, allowing him to get familiar with the surrounding area and all that sort of stuff, I think was a major, major factor in getting this deal done. Well, and I know two of the factors. I just want a little bit more about the family. Uh, one of the things that Hamilton has really, I think, developed very, very well into is, is education, first of all. It's an education mm-hmm. destination because of the university, et cetera. That's great for young kids. Uh, but it's also great for health care and, and children's health care, especially. And I know that was a factor into this, too. But let's let's switch gears and go to the football side of things right now. Uh, you know, Bo Levi lost his starting job uh, while he was injured, in, in fact. And, uh, and that was a factor in this. Of course, Jake Mayer was the guy that took over, played pretty well for them, got an extension to his contract, uh, which pretty much sent a message to Bo Levi that he didn't figure into their plans. Uh, but, you know, he's he's been around. He's been a two-time MVP, but he's been banged up a little bit. He's got a shoulder injury. Uh, what are you hearing about about the impact he can still have as, as a football player? He's healthy from all indications as he is fully healthy. He didn't play a ton last year. He was benched midway through the season. And there is obviously, when it comes to a player who has had Getting up there in age, he'll be 33, and I believe it's March is his birthday, so he'll be 33 when the season starts, who's had some injury issues the last three or four years, hasn't played a full season since 2018. There's obviously comes a little trepidation, a little hesitation on does he still have it, but he he's looked when he's been on the field the last few years, there's been glimpses, but there's been injury concerns. Now he says he's fully over that. I'll, I'll believe him at that as well, because that's, that's what I've heard is was that the, the shoulder injury, the leg injuries, all that stuff is, has been taken care of. And he comes to a team that has a pretty good offensive line in front of them. They start, depending on, again, free agency, the Ticats have almost two dozen free agents. A lot of them star players. So there's, there's some work still to be done to surround him with, with a cast that can win a championship. But on the injury front, I, I don't think there's any, I mean, there's always a concern with football players and injuries, right? Like you're one hit away from never playing again, but those nagging injuries that have been keeping him out of the lineup the last few years, I don't think those are going to be an issue going forward. I've talked to some folks, and well, include you in this, uh, you know, experts who know the CFL and know the players. And and that's the consensus I got from just about all of them. It was almost unanimous that, yeah, he's been hurt, uh, but what football player hasn't? But they, they suggest he's got at least another four or five years left in him where he could be really a strong contributor. And, and, and that's good news, obviously. They're not getting damaged goods here. And we saw that last year. I mean, you know, okay, he, he, he lost his, his starting job. Uh, to mayor, but I mean, they did not play well in their playoff game until they put Bo Levi in in the fourth quarter, and, and he he mounted a comeback. And they almost well, one more possession of the ball, and they could have tied that game. And who knows what would have happened? I mean, he 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 still got it. 
he does still have it. And we see now with what players know about how to work out nutrition in their bodies, guys are playing longer and longer. I, when I was growing up quarterbacks, football players, especially by your mid thirties, you were done. Like, some of my favorite players of all time, like they were 33 years old and, and retired. Now you see guys playing into their forties. And I think with, with the way Bo takes care of his body and I know the injuries have been there the last few years, but like, again, like we said, every football player is dealing with injuries at most points of the season, but with the way that he takes care of his body from a nutrition standpoint, from a training standpoint, I agree. I think he could play into his forties if he truly wanted to. So this could be, right, I, I got 30 a, seconds. Let me, let me jump in okay. here because you made a point and I just want to get your read on this. Will his signing, and I think there was a strategic reason why they did this now, is this going to help influence uh, some of these wide receivers that are free agents right now to maybe come back to the cats Dunbar and others? I believe so. I think he's going to be the big recruiting tool for the Ticats to get guys to come back and most importantly, to get new guys in the building when free agency opens in February. So yes, I think he's the, the guy that will be out there pounding the, pounding the table to get these guys back. Uh, it's it's going to be fascinating to watch, and we can get into further depth about exactly you know the impact he's going to have psychologically to this team later. But we got a lot of time to do that. Josh, as always, thanks so much for this, bud. Stay well, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks for having me as always, Bill. You betcha, Josh Smith from Three Down Nation. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.